Bookshop, the George Street Community Bookshop podcast for book lovers everywhere. Welcome to In the Bookshop, a podcast usually recorded in our shop, George Street Community Bookshop in Glossop, the gateway to the glorious Peak District. I say usually recorded in the shop because we are, of course, staying extremely alert and we're recording via the wonder of the World Wide Web. My name is Steve Roberts and I'm the manager of George Street Community Bookshop. Each episode, myself and producer Simon Galloway are joined by a guest who talks to us about five or six books they love and why they love them. This episode's guest is Alan Wilkes, a.k.a. singer-songwriter, Worcestershire resident and, in my opinion, national treasure, Vinnie Peculiar. Welcome, Vinnie. Hi, Steve. Good to be here. You okay? Yeah, I'm good, yeah. Good. I like this remoteness. It's, yes. It's strangely intimate. It is. In spite it? of its distance. Um, your latest album is called While We Still Can. So before we start on the books, can you tell us uh, about it and maybe what you've been up to during lockdown? Uh, yeah, sure, Steve. Thanks for having me on first. It's uh, it's a pleasure. It's always a pleasure for me to uh, reconnect with Glossop, mm. um, which is a place close to my heart. I've played many shows, little gigs up, up your way, as you know. But uh, yeah, what was the question again? The last album, yeah, Why <laughs> You Still Can, uh, it's probably been out, I don't know, three or four months now. Um, we did have a series of band gigs scheduled, which... Uh, of course, got curtailed by the, uh, the the virus business. I wrote the album sort of in response to some of the, uh, the crazy political times that we went through last year with that almost forgotten concept of Brexit, which of course is still very much yeah. uh, uh, around, but um, the media doesn't really have time to uh, wind us up about it quite in the way it did. Oh, they've got plenty of other stuff, haven't they? <laughs> uh, they've got plenty of other stuff to go on. And, uh, I mean, that also, that idea really struck me as well. Uh, I mean, one of the things the virus has done is, is it's dominated everybody's thinking to such a degree that you wonder what else is going to be sneaked in into the picture through the back door, if you like. Right. Uh, so, so that's a bit of a worry, but a lot of the... The, the album isn't especially overtly political, but it was definitely fired by the confusion and uh, sense of hopelessness and um, loss of identity and seeping nationalism that we seem to be, we seemed to be and probably still are kind of uh, part of, which uh, is always pretty worrying. I mean, I've been on a, there was an English Defence League demonstration down here and I went with the Labour Party on a counter demonstration and... Uh, I think it was one of the most depressing days of my life. <laughs> so uh, that's what the album was fired up by. I mean, uh, typically it's the first album in a long since the Parlour Flames album that I, I that was pressed up in vinyl, uh, which I thought was a great thing at the time. But of course, it, it's a lot harder to sell records without playing gigs. So it's still available now on vinyl and CD. I'd hope to I'd hope to shift most of the vinyl by now, and I, I haven't. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's difficult times for for all artists, isn't it? But it's a great. It's very difficult. It is a great album, and it is. I'd say it is slightly different uh, from your work lyrically, at least. As you say, you're, you're focusing on a lot of external things, aren't you? Uh, but it's a great album, and I hope people check it out. Oh, thanks, Steve. 
Okay, let's move on to our books. So, um, which is the first book you're going to talk about? Well, uh, I don't know, really. Um, maybe I could talk, uh, I think in our, our preamble, as it's called, before the show was recorded, you mentioned Billy Liar, so yes. maybe I should... Okay. Um, uh, and the poor musicians who may or may not be listening to, uh, to, to this will know that I, I have ranted on quite a lot about this book in the past. Um, and for some reason, I mean, uh, this happens with books. You, the odd book just, it doesn't, re- it, it doesn't resonate just kind of uh, when you've read it, but it, it just seems to come back and haunt you. And mm. uh, you find little quotes and ideas in it that just seem to resonate. And, uh, and this is a story of a, an ordinary lad in a northern town with a, an incredible imagination, which is as much fueled by the kind of mundanity of his circumstance as, uh, as, as just his imagination. And uh, he works in Undertaker's. I mean, I'm sure people know the story. It's, a, it's what, what's known as a classic kitchen sink drama from, uh, I think it was written in 1961. 59, I think. 59, was yeah, it? Yeah, I've done the research. Oh, <laughs> right, okay. But it's an interesting book in the sense, it's one of those books that I love that when I read it, and I've read it, reread it a few times, I hear the voices of the people right. in the film. Yes. Uh, which is a really good sign for the film. I mean, the film does a great job of... Uh, I mean, the whole story of Billy Lyra is set in a day. And um, he's at that age where uh, you know, he's, 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 he's a walking emotional crisis when <laughs> it comes to, comes to women. He's got two on the go, both that he's engaged to, and one that he's in love with, who's this kind of dream girl who's played by uh, Julie Christie in the film. And she comes tottering into town on the <laughs> foot and in the film it's uh, it's um i suppose it's kind of every lad's dream that you know we, we invest when we're young so much energy in, into uh finding that woman or that man or whatever whatever it is it's it's a beautiful thing and, the, uh, but the film uh is in black and white isn't it and um it is. and it suits the book as well doesn't it you can it's of yeah. that age i mean it is a, it's a kind of coming of age story isn't it um you yes. know and yeah it, it is a uh, he is a dreamer he's your classic he's dreamer, a, absolutely he? a dreamer and he's also he's dreaming for no reason at all quite often right he's he's growing his his nail extra long on his thumb because he can <laughs> it's, it's all those things that you know when you're on the cusp of uh, adolescence and manhood i think that's where he is yeah he's, he's at that sort of poignant time we've, and we've all and i think it's a powerful time that that's the time you know maybe when you first hear david bowie or whoever it is the beatles mm. um you, you know and obviously yeah there are there are newer <laughs> Newer bands are available, but, um, <laughs> but, but you know, uh, 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 and it, it's at a time when it really sticks with you. But, I mean, I got really into, uh, I mean, I visited, there's a great, there's a, so many great scenes in Billy Liar. And, um, you know, I actually went to, sit, went to visit them. Um, Undercliff Cemetery, there's a great cemetery scene where he takes his rather prudish girlfriend to a cemetery and uh, his mate Stamp has given him some passion pills, which he slipped her, you know, to... <laughs> And she's very, very prudish, and he gets his hand on her knee, and uh, all she's interested in is eating oranges. So, uh, <laughs> he doesn't get very, he doesn't get very far, and he kind of he he makes up stories all the time, you know, about his dad's wooden leg and his his uncle who uh, 
you know, died, or his brother who died, or no, it's his sister who died tragically, and pretty much everyone he meets in the story has got, he's, he's, he's disguising, he's having disguise and sort of work around all these lies he's told. Right. Which I don't think he sees as lies, it's just the boredom of yeah, adolescence. Just, he's, he's, killing, yeah. he's killing time, isn't he, yeah. basically? Yeah, but, and he's sat working in an undertaker's oh with, uh, yeah. with his mates, mm. which is a very strange job. And, uh, and of course, his dream is to be a scriptwriter, and the comedian comes to town, and that's very much a big part of the story. There's a comedian called Danny Boone that opens the local supermarket. Well, it? it's a funny. It is a funny book, but it's a kind of tragic. It's, it's a tragedy, yeah. isn't it, as well? But it, I mean, one of the, yeah, it is funny too. It is very funny. Yeah, it's funny, but the, and the tragedy really is 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 almost like an inevitability because in the end he does have the opportunity to run off to London with his dream girl and he can't do it. Yeah. He just can't do it. And you kind of know that for all his parents, uh, his parents sort of mitering him and pestering him and his dad's telling him he's good for nothing and, you know, yeah, he's now but a girl. You know, he gets all kinds of... 60s abuse yes <laughs> uh, and his grand's there and of course his grand dies in the book which is very very tragic you know part of the reason that uh, you know and he's contacted at a disco or a dance and uh, his grand's in the infirmary where he has to go and, uh, and face the fact she's died and then he's then he goes to the station and he just can't do it he's on the train and he cannot get the train to London well, it's a, it's yeah, it's a great book, and it is part of the the kind of cultural landscape, isn't it now? And uh, and it's yeah. not a genre book; it's just a book, if you know what I mean. It's not science fiction or or crime fiction. No, it's just no. it's just a book. And it's Keith Waterhouse. I think it was was a fantastic writer. You know, my, as I mentioned briefly before, he, he used to write for the Daily Mirror, and that was the only reason my dad ever bought. The Daily Mirror really yeah. was that was his paper of choice because Keith Waterhouse was a writer. Well, there's a real kind of um, there's a real kind of genuine warmth to the uh, the, the sort of frustrations and uh, almost comedic as- aspects of the generational things. Yes, in Billy Liar, you know he, the way they him and Rodney Buse do this great kind of. Mocking of the older generation. Oh, I forgot he was in it. Yeah, yeah. When I were when I were a lad, <laughs> and all that kind of stuff, you know. And you can sense the change. I mean, this is like nineteen sixty. Well, nineteen fifty-nine. You said it was written. Yeah. I thought it was slightly later, but I'm sure, I'll take your word for it. But, but um, we'll sort it out later. We'll, we'll end yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, we will. <laughs> but you can sense this change in the air. You can sense the sixties. Something's different happening with young people. It's not gone kind of long hair and LSD yet. That's 1965 in California. But the angry young men have arrived, haven't they? Yeah, these guys aren't so much angry as... They're sort of cocking a... Whatever you do, snubbing. They're looking back and thinking, you know, there's, more, there's got to be more mm. than a boring office job at Shagrack and Duxbury. Which, uh, it's, it's set in Bradford as well. Yes. A lot of it's filmed in Bradford. Yeah. So you mentioned the name of, of the, the funeral directors, and that, of course, is also the name of your record label, isn't it? Has <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is. That's yeah. how much uh, of an impact this book. Yeah, I, I have taken quite a few um, ideas from the book, I suppose. There's a great scene when um, he's, about, he's giving in his resignation letter to Leonard Rossiter, who plays Mr Shadrach. 
and uh, he comes out with this quote about a man can lose himself in London and uh, it's like he's kind of dreaming of something else but he, I've used that title a man can lose himself but it, it was nothing really to do with the book In the Bookshop the George Street Community Bookshop podcast for book lovers everywhere uh, In the words of uh, John Cleese and the team and now for something completely different mm. I don't know whether people know about a, uh, an American poet from uh, California called Richard Brausigan. He wrote these kind of ama amazing, uh, sort of childlike, in some ways, books. And he was like a, the poet laureate of the hippie generation over there in, in California. And I've got this book actually here, and it's, uh, it's a book of poetry, and it's called The, the Pill Versus the Spring Hill Mine Disaster. Oh by Richard Brautigan, and it, it contains poems that uh, half a line long, some of them. Half a line. <laughs> I think I, I discovered this book when I was 14, 15 at school, and uh, a few of the cooler, older hippie kids in the sixth form had it, and I think I robbed it off somebody. So it's kind of postmodern or something, half a line. Yeah, it, it, it just, it's just a, a very strange book of poems. Uh, I mean, I've also ended up with, I didn't know which book to pick by Richard Brodsken because there's lots of novels and uh, I, I have all the, all the books here. But this poetry book is, uh, is one I, I particularly like. I could read you a poem actually. Mm. Can I do that or is that boring? No, of course you can, go on. Okay, here's a poem, I think this was, this was written way back when by Richard Brodsken. Let me just see when this was... I should have really prepared this, shouldn't I, Steve? But this no, no, we we don't. 1968. There this you is go. 1968, and it it sort of uh, it sort of predicts this idyllic technological future, and it's called "All Washed Over by Machines of Loving Grace." Mm. I like to think, and the sooner the better, of a cybernetic meadow where mammals and computers live together in mutually programming harmony like pure water touching clear sky. I like to think right now, please, of a cybernetic forest filled with pines and electronics where deer stroll peacefully past computers as if they were flowers with spinning blossoms. I like to think it has to be of a cybernetic ecology where we are free of our labors and joined back to nature, returned to our mammal brothers and sisters and all watched over by machines of loving grace. Oh, wonderful. I, you know, <laughs> I, I like a bit of utopia. I, I enjoy my dystopia, but I do, I do like a bit of utopia. That's great. Yeah, and that's a beautiful way of looking at it. Um, you know, the, the 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 utopian angle, which is just it's it's a pure hippie. So, and I love the hippies. I mean, I love the peace and love thing. Right. And I know it all went wrong, but, but there was some just some great ideas coming out of that period. And he was, uh, he was very much part of it. I mean, the sad thing about Richard Brosigan, I think, was he produced all this work uh, and he was very highly regarded until, until the 1980s when the culture changed and uh, his style, which was so intrinsic to the hippie ethos, just wasn't what people wanted. Right. So he, en he ended up lonely, alcoholic, living out, I think, just outside of Big Sur, 
and he took his own life. Oh, right. I, uh, I didn't know much about him. I've had a little look. <clears throat> I know that uh, some a lot of his books kind of deal with the fall of civilizations, don't they? And... They're, they're all sort of outrageously um, sort of comic in some ways. Right. Um, well, people write songs about, about his books, don't they? There's a, you know... Yes. A number of yeah. people have written Nico Case and even Harry Styles, I think. Um, really? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I, I, my, the, the thing with Richard Brautigan was uh, he also produced sort of tape recordings of him reading his poetry, and I've got some of those as well, which are, are quite interesting. And and about maybe probably 10, 15 years ago, his daughter wrote a book about her dad because she didn't really know him. Mm. Um I think she was very young when he when he died, and she came to Waterstones in Manchester, and I went to the night and okay. met her. Wow! And her voice just was like his, and it was it's funny doing that because you find this strange connection to this this figure that you've kind of admired just becomes a little bit more real. It right. Was, it was quite a poignant evening. I went with some of my. Uh, Poetry buddies. <laughs> the poets. <laughs> yeah, well, we're hardly, I'm hardly a poet. But I mean, um, yeah, so I, I do like his work. And this collection of poems. What's the title of it again? The Pill versus the Spring Hill Mine Disaster. Right. By Richard Broadstone. Right, because I've, I've never heard of him before. Trout Fishing in America. Right. Is one of his most famous books. Um, the title was cribbed in some way by Edwin Collins for his uh, uh, Salmon Fishing in New York, right, okay. Orange Juice record, if you remember. Yeah. But yeah, he, he, he's, he's always very, uh, it's quirk. it's what you call sort of hippie quirky, but very strange. This is a book by George Melly, who people will oh, probably yes. know. Hmm. And you, I'm sure you know this book, Steve. It's yes. called Re- Revolt into Style. Yep. And it's subtitled The Pop Arts in Britain. This has got a fantastic sort of Warhol-esque cover. I think this is a fairly early print of it. It's by Peter Blake. Hmm. And it's Paintings of the Beatles. So it's the four Beatles together on the front cover by Peter Blake. I looked, since you mentioned it, I've looked. I had a copy of it and I can't find it anywhere. And I blame that on moving house a number of times. Yeah. And I'm gutted that I can't find it. And I hope it's stuck in... You didn't lend it to me, did you? <laughs> oh, you never know. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> no, I didn't. But yeah, so tell us about Revolt into Style, because it's fantastic. George Melly is fantastic. George Melly, if people don't know him, was a, a trad jazz artist and art critic. And, uh, yeah, Revolt into Style really it sort of hits a chord with me because it really talks... Um, it's more of a sort of, uh, it's a social analysis of the arts, of arts and culture and their political impact on the establishment, I think. That's, that's a very sort of brief way of saying right. it. Mm. And he does, fo- he focuses a lot on the Beatles and the early revolutionary spirit of their music and how this can happen in all, in all arts. The establishment needs to keep an eye on it because when it's at the early stage... Of, of development, it becomes a very powerful force and often a threat to the mm. establishment. And um, when I read this book, I, I kind of transposed some of his ideas on the Beatles to punk. Right. Because punk, punk was a similar kind of thing. People in the establishment certainly uh, 
would have felt quite threatened and uh, destabilized by all these young people starting to think outside the box. Right. And that's what art can help you do, and music can help you do that. It can help. It can help you uh, react against a former regime. Of, you know, this is why stuff like the Beatles were banned in Russia. Yes, for example, they just came straight down and said, "No Beatles, we're not having any of that." Mm. What they're saying is a threat to our establishment. But it, we don't do that in the UK. What we do is we grind people down gently <laughs> and we and sell buy them, them off. Yeah. And yeah. we buy them off. Mm. That's basically what we do. And then we recommodify them and sell them back to everyone who accepts them as, as, an enter as entertainment. Right. It's no longer revolting. It's no longer challenging. It's no longer a threat. And that happened to punk. I mean, look at, look at the Sex Pistols at their festivals a few years ago. Yes. Five, five fat fellas on the beer. Yeah. They're about about as threatening as Mickey Mouse, you know. Well, that's and that's not particularly the the fault of the artist, is it? I mean, because no, oh, no, no. people no. get old and people change no, their ways, and they get and tired also, of being, they get tired of revolting, yeah. <laughs> you know. They they, they do, yeah. and, and you, I mean, you can't blame them. I wasn't having a pop at them. No, no. I no. was just having a. I just thought for me that overview in the book of that process. It kind of it makes you uh, uh, it makes you realise we're all sort of very much part of that sort of collective process of yes. of, uh, of com uh, almost we have to sort of come together in some way to keep sane. And and um, and I think that's what artists do. And Melly, of course, would have seen it in the Bohemian years, the jazz years, wouldn't he? He'd have seen it he happen would. already, and he recognised it happening yeah. again with the well happened again rather with the Beatles um, yeah. was trying to say look this is what happens yeah. keep an eye out for it and you'll you'll this know, is the, you know this is a this is the process that that, that you're going to be part of whether you like it or not mm. well he's a, mm. he was a fantastic surrealist as well wasn't he he wasn't just a, a he jazz was, singer he was, an, he was he was an art critic wasn't he yeah. and, and, and he, uh, he had passion for uh for all kinds of arts. I, yeah. I saw him once at uh, Liverpool Playhouse. Did you? I've never, I never saw him. With uh, Johnny... Uh, da what's his Dankworth. Name? Dankworth. Dankworth, yes. Yeah. And it was fantastic. And, and at the end, uh, This Is Your Life, what's his name, came on and presented him with This Is Your Life with his book. It oh, was really? it, it Was, a was suit that even Andrew's yeah. there? No, it wasn't. It was <laughs> Michael uh, Aspel. Michael Aspel. And it was suitably surreal. <laughs> And, oh and, and George Melly getting the This Is Your Life, uh, you know, see. book on stage. And it was, uh, and Ken Dodd was at the back of the uh, of the room of the playhouse, surrounded by old ladies. It was, it wow. was, it was, it was brilliant. And it was, it seemed completely George Melly, you know, this kind of, uh, he, he wasn't a snob, was he? He knew what he. Well, this is, this is it. I mean, George Melly, just the way he sort of presented himself, he's really articulate, yes. slightly, slightly kind of upper class in his demeanor with his suits but his his music was just guttural jazz almost sexual jazz yeah he was very kind of like an old blues guy you know gone jazz he, he was he was interesting and of course he probably has the finest title of all biographies going which i've also read his biography um because he his sexuality was kind of what you might call fluid I yes think. yeah and the title of his 
his biography is, is Rum Bum and Concertina, <laughs> which is apparently the, the, the homoerotic uh, alternative to wine, women, and song. Brilliant. That covers, <laughs> which, it covers all bases there. Yes. Yeah, and no, I think he, went, he was at sea for quite a while. He's got a few seafaring stories. Right. Fantastic. You know, well, that's George Melly was a serious artist, but he was fun and is. His writing style, he had wonderful facility with language, didn't he? And, uh... I would recommend this book. Um, and it's different. I, I didn't want all the books to be kind of the same kind of book, you know, and you asked me to pick them. So yeah. this is a kind of social, social, sociological investigation with humour into the way things are created and commodified and resold back to us. Brilliant. That's a nice summary, I think. And I, I too would... Uh, would say that Revolting Style is well worth getting hold of. And Steve, I've got yes. a song called Revolting to Style. Ah, okay. <laughs> I, I think I used to use it years ago when I was um, uh, a, a very young mod. I would put it on posters, Revolting to Style, before yeah. I even read the book. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm, I've got a but I think Bill Nelson was there before me. He's got one as well. There's a Bebop Deluxe song called Revolting to Style. I might have to do one. In the Bookshop. The George Street Community Bookshop Podcast, for book lovers everywhere. This is an interesting novel by um, a relatively modern writer called Will, Will Self, yes. which people I'm sure are familiar with, and it's called Great Apes. I mean, Will, I've, I've got most of Will Self's books, um, which I've read uh, and mostly enjoyed. But this one, this one stands out for me. This, this is a fascinating um, uh, book uh, where where humankind gets uh, reimagined as as ape kind, and the humans become the apes. If you know what I mean. Yes. So a guy wakes up as an ape and finds all all his relations are sort of ape like. He's like a former human, and um, he's a psychiatrist, and and it slowly realizes dawns, and as the book progresses. He realizes that the whole of humankind is actually ape kind. So the intelligent, interesting, well-to-do, socially mobile creatures inhabiting this earth are apes. Yes. And it's, there's just some fantastic juxtapositions of, of sort of ape life and human life. It's a great scene when he actually wakes up and discovers he's covered in fine and he walks with a stoop and it, but I mean he, he goes on a tr- on a trip to the zoo Steve I never there's a great scene when he goes on a trip to the zoo and they they go to the human uh, house the, the, yeah the human house <laughs> yeah I, I was looking for the right yeah. term and, uh, and and someone says oh look at him over there he's wanking oh <laughs> wow look at that like there's a human and then the the human goes back into this small house and has a fight with his wife and all, you know, and they're, and they're, they're mocking human behaviour from an ape perspective, and it, it, it's um, it's surreal. Like a lot of Will Self books are, it sort of it creates this alternative world. It, it's quite a challenging book. I mean, um, I I read it when it came out. I loved Will Self, um, and this was like his uh, bestseller in a way, and it was quite strange. For him to suddenly become, you know, a best-selling author. But if you read reviews of it now, because I had a quick look, so many people saying, "Oh my God, I couldn't even look at the get past the second page," you know, it kind of disgusts people. It was really, 
Which yeah, Wilself no, is good at doing, isn't, isn't he? He's yeah. very good at that. I mean, there's there's a few of his books. There's a book called uh, How the Dead Live. Oh, yes, I read that, yeah. That's, mm. that's very similarly, oh, yeah, oh, right, so mm. we're all dead. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> and, but, but there's a lot. But he's a he's a big thinker, and um, it's like a kind of uh, it's like a it's like a, it's like a sort of tripping into another frame of reference for for the entire nature of life, if you like. I think the the character's name is Simon Dykes, isn't it? The psychiatrist, I think. And he but he'd been up all night, hadn't he, on a on a drug or drink binge. Uh, when he wakes up and just finds he's an ape, and so he doesn't quite know if he's if he's got over his you know yeah, he's into reality or not, you know, which is that's the, the the scene with him waking up and in in an alternative universe, which is is absolutely horrendous. Yes. It must be horrendous. Yeah, but yeah, it seems so presented as such a, leg, a legitimate thing. Yeah, I remember thinking. So what he's saying is that we are apes. <laughs> basically yeah. you know yeah. that's what we are that's yeah. what I remember I read it when it came out so that was 20 years ago or something well he, he, sort of, he sort of makes no distinction does he really between the two yeah we are know? we're all because he, he switches the roles yeah and it all seems perfectly legit mm. and, and I, I, I totally get that Okay, so your next book. The, the Handmaid's Tale by mm. Margaret Atwood. I came to Margaret Atwood uh, a little bit late, later in the day than, than a lot of the um, people I know who were reading her. <laughs> we're usually women. Yes. And it, it is interesting when you're a, a reader to look at the gender issue, really, and just how many women you end up reading versus how many men. Yeah. I think I've started to read more women writers in the last 10 years. But uh, I don't know why, I wasn't conscious of it, but um, a, a woman friend of mine reminded me of this a few years ago and said, uh, yeah, it's typical you, you only read men. And I'm thinking, <laughs> I said, do I? And I, I wasn't aware of it, but... Um, I've had to make the effort, and I, um, with managing the bookshop, yeah. I was conscious of the fact that so much fiction is read by women, and so many of the writers are women. Yeah. But it felt like a lot of the well-known authors were men. Yeah. And so I I started doing that. I mean, it started easily, I suppose, with people, relatively easy, with people like Kate Atkinson. Yes. Uh, and I kind of started reading uh, Patricia Highsmith and Penelope Fitzgerald. And, oh, yeah, yeah. I don't I don't know those. I know the names, yeah, like and, I say, but I haven't... Uh... And there, was, there is a slight... There is, as a man, it, it is different. I, I mean, I think that's probably... Isn't that something to do with the writers that have been sort of relentlessly promoted by publishers to us, and the ones that have got the big book deals? It, it's 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 the same in music, really. Mm. You know, um, you get Black Joni peeping through, but everyone else around her is male. You know, it's Crosby, Stills, James, saying all that kind of scene or there are a lot of females in in music, but it's the men who are held up as you know. Being, being Elvis yeah. or Dylan. Yeah. I think Joni's up there, Steve, isn't she? Well, she's about the only one, I think. She is she? the exception to the rule. Yeah, and there should be a lot more, you know. There uh, should be. Okay, know. Handmaid's Tale, Margaret Atwood, Canadian writer. And she's a Canadian writer and she sets this story in um, 
And um, it's, it's, I think we talked about utopia. Mm. Well, this is, this is dystopia, oh, isn't definitely. it? This is the creation of a, of a, of a, a harrowing, kind of familiar, but, but totally disturbing future where um, the government to is totalitarian. There's, there's absolute control of the population. There's a problem with reproduction. And handmaids are just w one of several sort of tribes created by the fictitious government, well, by the government of Gilead, is mm. the name of the place, which is, it's almost like probably about as big as Texas and just south of Canada. Yeah. Um, so she's created it, but um, it's, it's frighteningly, it has frighteningly real and al al almost sort of, uh, comparisons with 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 America with Trump's America in terms of its uh, sort of divisiveness and cruelty. I mean, the the, the whole the heroine um, of the of the of the piece is a handmaid, and handmaids are uh, probably seen the TV series, yeah. but they have the the red cloaks and the white the white hats, and they are employed by wealthy families to help them reproduce so they are raped by by the men of the ha men of the household on a monthly basis with a view to uh, to have children mm. which is it's a it's which is very very dark yes terrific and the book is really about the the injustice of that and the, and the past life of the girl who lived in Canada before uh, everything changed mm. and uh, it's a very very powerful read she also kind of illustrates the normalization of that kind of conduct doesn't she because it's uh, she said that everything in it has happened somewhere in the world and happens sometimes still to this day and you know she's not made anything up as such you know that's yeah it's the way she's kind of pulled together strands of nastiness from all over the place and, and, and use them. Yeah, no, I, I think I read that somewhere. I've heard her, her interviewed about it. She's a remarkable writer. Mm. I've read a couple of other books of hers, but, but this one was tied in with, uh, and I don't want to sort of, I know this is about books, and the book is absolutely amazing, but the, the, the TV series was really very good. It was. Wow. Mm. And uh, it's, it's a very powerful story about um, kids, she loses her own child to a, a well-to-do family in Gilead, and she's kind of held there as much. She's she's desperate to see a child, right? So there's a lot of there's a lot of sadness and a lot of cruelty in it, really. It, and the subjugation of women is at, is at the heart of it, isn't it? How they it, it, exploit it women, and you know, on on an everyday level. I mean, there's some there's some terrible, terribly disturbing scenes. I can still remember now. They, they, you know, for, 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 for people breaking the law, the handmaids will stone a fellow handmaid to death. You know, so there's stoning yes. going on. Yes. And, and, and we know that actually goes on in some cultures. Mm. This goes back to what you said. You know, she's, she's taken that from uh, whichever culture she's taken it from. And, uh, but to see, to see it sort of uh, enacted and to read about it, it's highly disturbing. And, of course, people are, are being hung... In public, which yeah. is a great way of controlling a population. Mm. Nobody's good, you know. This, uh, you know, the Beatles are probably banned too. You know, yes. yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's just the start of it. You know, just it, it's really about total control. And of course, 
the book reveals that, uh, like all totalitarian regimes, there's a hierarchy that are just doing whatever they like. Whatever, yes. You know, and you know whether that's you know Mao or you know, you know it, it's that, and that that's based very much on uh, what, what we've come to know to be true. Uh, for those regimes so i think like 1984 yeah. it's completely you know horrific but at the same time it's high, highly readable isn't it it's one of those dystopian novels that is that is readable it's it's something you can enjoy reading in a yes. in a perverse kind of way isn't it you know it's great it's it's great it's written really well i think well handmaid's tale yeah okay I I, uh, I I would recommend that, particularly if you're an old guy like me that has tended to read more men. Right. Okay. Get, get, some, get some Margaret Atwood. Blow your blow your mind. In the bookshop, the George Street Community Bookshop podcast for book lovers everywhere. Okay. If the final book is by um, an arch miserabilist <laughs> LA poet called Charles Bukowski who wrote an incredible amount of stuff. I mean, he died in 1994, and since his death, they've republished, I don't know, they've published 13 books of unpublished stuff. He was just like a poetry machine who had a sort of fascinating and yet slightly sad upbringing where his father was very cruel to him, and he had a terrible teenage life. He was afflicted by acne, and... uh, and the birth of a lot of um, cruelty from his family. Um, he was originally from Germany, went to live in LA, LA with his family. And, uh, and he left home early and just slummed it. He lived in some very poor flop houses in LA as a young man without much money and took to writing and never stopped. Which is quite odd because he's known for, for saying, don't try. Isn't he? His advice, yeah, he, his advice to writers is don't uh, try. Yeah, and he, hate, he sort of hated everyone. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's, uh, he hated poetry and particularly poets. You know, he, and he's another guy that recorded a lot of his stuff. So when I read his poems, you can hear his voice. Right. It's like he's just talking to you. And he writes those kind of poems where, where you just feel like you're in, in the room and he's just giving you a tiny bit of advice and you can take it or leave it. Right. This sometimes happens with with people that I really like. I went. To, I really used to like Jack Kerouac a lot, and he wasn't a very nice person either. Yeah. If people aren't particularly nice, I think on the surface, I think their humility and kindness comes through their work. Right. And you can say this with in all kinds of art. You should never really judge a book by the cover. Yeah. Sorry, I sound like I'm on some kind of uh, philosophical lecture, but. Yeah. I think you're right, but it's difficult to do nowadays with the internet. Uh, people, oh, yeah. I mean, I was just reading the other day about a, a singer-songwriter who who passed a few years, who died a couple of years, a few years ago, who now turns out was an absolute swine. I don't want to mention his, his name on here, and it's so disappointing. But yeah. in a way, people like uh, Kerouac, uh, uh, Bukowski, th- that was their kind of brand as well, wasn't it? Sort of hating people to a degree. Yeah. And they also, they, you kind of play up to your initial shot at public persona, I guess. Maybe they, maybe he was just doing that. I mean, he settled down to a reasonably, you know, just, just to an ordinary life in L.A., going to the racetrack, where he wrote numerous poems about boxing and racing. Right. And they, they, they're, just, they're just relentless. Have you but, got a poem um, you can read us of his? A Bukowski poem. Mm. Uh, well, I've got a book here. Um, I do have a few favourites. Let me find it. 
This is a book called The Rooming House Madrigals. This is one of my favourite Bukowski poems, and it's called The Genius of the Crowd. And I like this poem because it's, it talks about the hypocrisy of those that would, would like to lecture and inform and control us in some ways. Anyway, I'll read it. Uh, it's called The Genius of the Crowd. Okay. There is enough treachery, hatred, violence, absurdity in the average human being to supply any given army on any given day. And the best at murder are those who preach against it. And the best at hate are those who preach love. And the best at war, finally, are those who preach peace. Those who preach God need God. Those who preach peace do not have peace. Those who preach love do not have love. Beware the preachers, beware the knowers, beware those who are always reading books. Beware those who either detest poverty or are proud of it. Beware those quick to praise, for they need praise in return. Beware those quick to censure, for they are afraid of what they do not know. Beware those who seek constant crowds. They are nothing alone. Beware the average man, the average woman. Beware their love. Their love is average, seeks average. But there is genius in their hatred. There is enough genius in their hatred to kill you, to kill anybody. Not wanting solitude, not understanding solitude, they will attempt to destroy anything that differs from their own. Not being able to create art, they will not understand art. They will consider their failure as creators, as only a failure of the world. Not being able to love fully, they will believe your love incomplete, and then they will hate you, and their hatred will be perfect, like a shining diamond, like a knife, like a mountain, like a tiger, like hemlock, their finest art. Well... That's magnificent, but, and it's an awful lot to chew over and worry about, really, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a lot there to, there's a lot there to take in. But what, but what I took from that poem, and what I still take from that poem, is, is sometimes, I think what he's saying is there's, there are so many people out there so quick to judge, hmm. and, and often, the, often the biggest judges are the ones that aren't doing aren't really clued into why there is this organic need in so many of us to create something. And the power of the crowd and their judgment right. to destroy and hate stuff they don't even give any kind of credence to or don't really understand yeah. is it, it, dangerous. And, uh, and they're good at it. Yeah. Ordinary people are good at destroying people. It's just Twitter. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's yes, it's a, yeah. God, it's Twitter. Okay, well, I think we've had our six books uh, from Vinnie Peculiar, and it was absolutely fascinating. Thank you for that. Oh, absolute pleasure, Steve. I love Glossop, as you know. I don't know we we'll, and we'll be we'll be gigging again soon at some point because we were due to, weren't we? And we didn't. We, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. It's, well. We actually, the first time I actually came to Glossop, other than driving through, was was with you when we played at Glossop Labour Club uh, almost 20 years ago. 
It's not 20 years yeah, ago, is it? Almost. Oh, my goodness. And there were lots of you'll never leave signs up all around the Labour Club. <laughs> and it was raining oh, and it looked like Coronation Street. And now yeah, George Street yeah. Community Bookshop is down the road from, mm. from it. So anyway, wow. if you want to find out more about uh, Vinnie, check out vinniepeculiar.com. Cheers. Thank you for having me, Steve. Okay, so uh, thanks very much. That's uh, in the bookshop. You can find George Street Community Bookshop on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Just search for George Street Community Bookshop and follow us for the latest updates. To find out more about who we are and what we do, have a look at our website, georgestreetcommunitybookshop.co.uk, where you can now also buy books from us online. And of course, now that we're starting to open again, you can always come and visit us at the shop on George Street in Glossop. And we hope you can join us next time in the bookshop. In the bookshop, the George Street Community Bookshop podcast for book lovers everywhere.